what I want to do is I want to speak about the preeminence or the importance of a local church. Now, this is a message that I do not every year, but I try to do it somewhat consistently because I believe as a pastor, obviously this is kind of self-serving, right? You need to come to church. Well, of course the pastor's going to say that, right? But I believe the Bible tells us that you need to gather with other believers, that it's important to be connected to a local church, that it's, that it's no trivial matter. So, so what's the problem? As we consider Western Christianity, and really what has made the West what it is, is you know, individual liberty, right? Our country was founded on this concept of liberty, right? The Revolutionary War was fought for freedom. Civil War fought for freedom for slaves. Freedom is important to us. Individual freedom. And, and their individual freedom is important, but the problem is if individual freedom is given importance over and against the good of the whole or the group or the community, then there's a problem, right? We're so individualistic, it's like, well, I don't care about anybody else. All that I care about is what's happening to me. And if I'm okay, then I'm okay, and really, you know, that everybody else is whatever. And, and that, that is a problem in our, in our culture. There's a book written back in 2000 called Bowling Alone. It was written by Robert D. Putnam. And the subtitle is The Collapse and Revival of American Community. It's a very influential book, actually. It's called Bowling Alone, if you want to look at it. And he begins the book by talking about the demise of social clubs, like the Kiwanis and the Lions and you know, these, these, these social clubs uh, where people would gather uh, as a community you know, to accomplish things collectively for the good of the community. And, and, and membership in those types of, of organizations has declined dramatically. And so, hence the title, Bowling Alone, like even bowling leagues have diminished. And so the problem is, is the exaltation of the individual and the good of the individual against or in indifference to the good of the whole, of the community. And so when you consider the church, God saves individuals, totally. I mean, God saves one person at a time. The church doesn't save you. But Christ is, we're told in Scripture, the Savior of the body. He loved the church and gave Himself up for her in Ephesians chapter 5. The moment one trusts uh, trust Jesus Christ for salvation, they are baptized by one Spirit into one body. And then Paul says in Romans, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. When you come to Christ as Savior, you are spiritually knit into His body. There is a spiritual reality. You've been transferred From the kingdom of the darkness to the kingdom of the sons, you're taken out of the world, you are placed into the body of Christ. There is a spiritual reality. There is a change in your life. You're not out there on your own anymore. And so the problem is is that the good of the whole has been diminished for the sake of the individual. So this morning I want to talk about the importance of the local church. What is the church, right? And there's two definitions here, kind of theological definitions. There's two ways to look at the church. There's the universal church. We call this the big C church. And the universal church is everybody that's placed their faith in Jesus Christ from the day of Pentecost until now, whether in heaven or on earth, right? It's it's everybody that's ever placed their faith in Jesus Christ since the day of Pentecost when the church began. That's the big C, the universal church. The scripture also recognizes the local church, The local church is the visible expression of the universal body or invisible 
church, right? So you've got this invisible universal body, but there are these localized geographical manifestations, entities called local churches that represent this bigger body of Christ. Scripture represents both of those. So, so how is the body of Christ different than the local church, or is it? Well, it's when Paul is writing his letters, for instance, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, okay, he's, he's writing to specific churches, to, to, to local entities. It's interesting in our Wednesday night, or not ours is Wednesday night, but in the Resolving Everyday Conflict study, the guy who's leading it made the point that the church at Corinth could have been only 40 people. It's a smaller church. I don't know how true that is, but that's interesting. So, so local churches are the churches that Paul was writing to. And you can say, well, I mean, he wrote to Galatians to the church at Galatia, okay? Well, it was assumed that when he wrote the letter, that the, church, the letters were taken and distributed to the individual churches, that it was written to the church. I mean, even if you look at First and Second Peter, James, or Hebrews, the idea was that local entities were going to be reading this biblical truth that had been given to them. So really, is there a difference between the local church and the universal church? Well, they're, they're kind of one and the same. I mean, just, the local church is a, is a smaller entity of the universal church. So the question on the table is this morning is, why should the local church be important to me? Why is it a big deal? Well, okay, well it's a no-brainer, Jay. I mean, come on. I mean, you go to church. What you do is you go to church. Christians do is they go to church. Not everybody thinks that anymore, for sure. So I want to give you five reasons this morning why the local church should be important to you. And the first one is God's glory. Then we're going to see God's love, God's truth, God's people, God's plan. So five, you got five things, five points. And when we consider the church and God's plan, the church should be preeminent because it magnifies the glory of God, right? If you read, Paul reads this letter to the church at Ephesus, and it is this beautiful writing about the importance of the church in chapter 2, he talks about this mystery that, 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 God, that God would bring Gentiles and Jews together. These Gentiles who weren't separated from God have been brought near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Who would have thought the Gentiles were included in God's plan of redemption? And then in chapter 3, he specifically talks about this mystery of Jews and Gentiles together. People who should be at war with one another are now serving God in the same body. And the fact that God would bring two groups so distinct from one another, together into one body, is his manifold wisdom, right? We see this in Ephesians chapter 3. His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That concept of manifold wisdom is that God's wisdom has shown itself in Christ with boundless variety or riches, right? Manifold means variegated, multifaceted, multidimensional. The church is as varied as there are people brought into the church. And it's in the wisdom of God that he would move from dealing with one people, the Jews, to dealing with everybody on the face of the earth, that he would include everybody into his plan of redemption. And in doing so, he's displaying his glory, right? 
that his manifold, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. It should be broadcast to the world. It should be, it should be uh, it, it's the world declared to the world. God is glorified. His manifold wisdom is made known. So the church is central to the glory of God in this time. J.R. Stott writes this, if the church is central to God's purpose, his glory, right? For, for from him, through him, and to him are all things, to him be the glory. And Paul's just said the church is the manifold wisdom of God's being made known, is glorifying God. If the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central in our lives. How can we take lightly what God has taken so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed in this center? No, we shall seek to become responsible church members active in some local manifestation of the universal church. The church is the center of God's plan right now, his plan of redemption. God's glory is being manifest in the church. In chapter 3, he finishes out like this. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You might say, oh, that's the universal. No, it's, it's yeah, it's local and universal. You can't separate the local church from the universal. You can't say there's a universal church unless you're going to say there are local churches. So the first reason that the local church should be important is because of God's glory. You have been created to glorify God. The church exists to bring glory to God. God is glorified as sinners turn from worshiping idols to Him, the true and living God, and that's through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that message that's been given to the church to proclaim to the nations. And so the church should be important to you because of God's glory. Secondly, it should be important to you because of God's love. Because of God's love. In Ephesians as well, in chapter 5, Paul is talking about relationships in the, in the body of Christ, husband and wife relationships. Okay, and he's going to describe for us the great love that Christ has for the church because he gave his life for the church. We see this in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And at the end of this passage, as Paul's talking about the, the, the relationship between a husband and a wife, and then he says, you know, this is a mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. That's his main focus is the importance of the church and the great love that God has for the church, the kind of love that would give up his own blood. Right in Acts chapter 20, when Paul is going back to Jerusalem, he stops by to talk to the elders from Ephesus, and he says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, this is kind of an aside, but one thing that takes a wrap right now is church membership. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says people should be a member of a church. Okay, there is no text that says you need to, you know, uh, read the church, uh, you know, find a local church, read its constitution, read its covenant statement. You need to do all the requirements and then, and then go forward and, and become a member of the church. It doesn't say that. But it's understood that Christians are going to place themselves under the authority of local church as an entity and the, the leadership that's in the church, right? How else can an overseer, if somebody's an overseer, 
They have to know what they're overseeing or who they're overseeing. A pastor can't be a pastor of every single sheep in the world or in the universe, right? There has to be a known entity to the flock. So there has to be a known number in the church for which they can be an overseer. That's an aside. But the point here is this, is that the church is so important that God would give his blood for the church. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So do you have the same love for the church that God, that Christ has for the church? Think about the love relationships in your life for a minute. We have some, some newlyweds. I can still remember when I first started dating my wife. And, and I was willing to forego anything, basically, to, to be with my wife, to my wife-to-be at the time. I was willing to sacrifice comfort, desires, goals, career pursuits, education. I was, I, was, I was like, whatever. I'm here. I'm yours. She's like, what's happened? <laughs> no, I, I, I do get selfish about sleep sometimes. My comforts. But, I mean, think about the, the you know, in this kind of relationship, right? The, the commitment that's involved there, the, the exclusivity, hopefully, that's involved there the rearranging of priorities that's involved here. And so, I want you to think about that earthly relationship. That is the picture that Paul uses, okay, in his description of Christ and the church. Right? I I say this all the time in premarital counseling. You know, God didn't, you know, God didn't... uh, create marriage and say, oh yeah, the church relationship's kind of like, it's kind of like the marriage relationship. That's a good way of looking at it. No, he created the relationship between Christ and his people, his bride, the church. He created that relationship, and then he creates marriage to show the intimate love that God has for his people, the intimate love that God has for his bride, the church. So what are you willing to do or sacrifice for the sake of the local church? God's glory is manifest in his church, and he gave his own blood for the church. The church should be important to you, and so you should be willing to sacrifice comfort, desires, goals, career pursuits, education, and financial security. It grieves me when parents send their kids away to school for four years of education, not giving any thought to their connection to a local church when they send them away. That, to me, is backwards. Your love for God is only as real as your love for his people, the church. Big C, little c. And if you say that you love the church, then you need to love the people that make up the church, right? We talked about this last week, right? If anybody does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed, right? Is Paul overstating his case there? Pretty strong words. If anyone does not love the Lord, well, how do you know somebody loves the Lord? And I said this last week. You love the Lord if you obey his commandments. Greatest commandment, love God with all that you are. Second, like it, is love your neighbor as yourself. So you can't really say that you love God if you don't love his people. His people are the church. Which is why John would write in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. Whoever does not love God, does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, 
cannot love God whom they have, have not, I'm sorry, let me back up. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and their sister. You have to love the church. That's what he's talking about, brothers and sisters, the church, the body of Christ. So, and I, this is the point I was making last week. If somebody is completely disconnected from the church in any way, shape, or form, and I'm going to talk about this more in a minute, and they say that they love God, how do you know? How do you know if they love God? To love God is to love his people. Now, again, that concept of hate is not this visceral, like, I want you dead. It can, as Sam mentioned this morning, it can be indifference. Like, you just ignore people. You don't give them, you know, the, the time of day. They have needs, and you're just totally disregarding a need that they may have. That is the same as hatred. To love God is to love his people. The church should be important because of God's glory, because of his love, and because of his truth. The local church should be preeminent in your life because it is the receiver, proclaimer, and protector of New Testament truth, especially the gospel. Right? I mentioned that earlier. When, when Paul was writing, he was writing to local churches. Local churches were receiving he calls it the sacred deposit of his writings. First Timothy, as he's writing to this young pastor, he says, although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to connect themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. The church is where God's truth is is received, it's proclaimed, it's protected. That concept of a pillar is interesting. These are Corinthian columns or pillars holding up uh, the upper level of that building. And it's, it's common at sitting, that, that sitting on these columns would be a message of some sort, a truth that would be placed, would be sitting at the top of the columns. In other words, these Corinthian columns are going up and they support the truth. And this happens to be a post office, right? Neither snow nor rain nor heat nor gloom of night stays these couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds. That's the the post office's, uh, I guess, mission statement or, or motto or whatever. But it's the truth at the top of the building that they have. And this is what Paul is referring to. The church, it's like those columns, those pillars, those support. And on the top of those supports is the truth of the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're looking for truth, which people are looking for truth, especially in this culture where truth is shifting, there is no objective standard of truth. The church is where you go to hear the truth. The Bible, the Word of God. And so you should value the church because it is the receiver, the proclaimer, and protector of New Testament truth. So God's glory, God's love, God's truth, and I'm going to spend a moment here on God's people. This is an important point. The local church should be preeminent in your life because her people are a primary means God uses to validate your faith and enable you to endure until the return of Christ. I don't know how many of you think of this in your own life. Is my faith real? Do I have a genuine faith? Do I have a living faith? Do I, and if I have a living faith, do I have a saving faith? Is my faith pleasing to God? Is God going to be ashamed of my faith? We heard this morning. 
Do I have valid faith? And will I persevere or endure in that faith until the return of Christ? The church is here to help you with that. So I've got two points really here that I'm going to make here. That it's the primary means that God uses to validate your faith and to cause you to endure. Now the concept of validating your faith, I spoke about this last week, so I need to say much. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness. To be in darkness is to be outside of Christ. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. so, So this... Loving your brother and sister is a clear indicator of whether or not you have a valid faith. And it was at this point last week that I popped up this slide. This, these are all the one another passages uh, that are in our, in our covenant statement. The one another's that the Wednesday Bible, stu- Bible study group should be going through right now. And, and these are how you validate your faith. What does it mean to love one another? Well, here it is. And And... And um, John says, if you don't love your brother and sister, then what? You are in the darkness. So my point last week is if you have no connection to a local church, and and when I say that, all right, there are some people, let's let's say, we'll start the extreme example, you know, you're overseas and you're walking on the beach and you pick up a bottle, and the bottle there's a piece of paper. You get the piece of paper out, and it's a gospel tract, and it tells you about Jesus Christ being the only way of salvation. And you read that, and the Holy Spirit works, and you come to faith in Christ, and you're trusting in Jesus. But there's no church for you, be, you to be connected to. Well, okay, that's an extreme example. You know, you back off that a little bit, and there's sometimes there are, are times when you're overseas, and you have you don't have you're over there serving the Lord, and you, there's not a body of believers that you can gather with, so you're not. That's really connected to a local church. Sometimes there are people in a transitional point in their life where they're like, okay, I'm changing jobs, I'm moving to a new place, I'm, I'm not really connected, but I'm trying to be connected. And sometimes life gets the best of them and they just don't get connected to a church right away. It takes some time. Then there are some people, you know, who are members of a church, but they're never really there, right? They're on the piece of paper, they're a member, but there are other people who aren't members that are there way more than they are, okay? And then you have people who uh, have come to faith in Jesus Christ. They're believing with all their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, but they don't think they need the church. That they, they have spiritually taken a position where they know better than the church. That the church has made mistakes, and because the church has made mistakes, they're not worthy of my time. I can teach myself. I don't need any teacher. I've got the Holy Spirit as my teacher. I can listen to Alistair Begg every week. You know, I've got, you know, uh, Third Day or whoever I can listen to. Casting Crowns, I can listen to them every week and praise God with that. And, and so I don't, I, don't need, I don't need to be connected to a local church. This is the person I'm worried about right here. Because... A, how do they know that their, 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 their faith is valid? How are they going to endure in the faith? We're not created to be lone rangers, to be these free agents existing on our own outside of the local church. That's not biblical. 
And so for this person last week, I overstated my case. I said, they're headed for hell. I would have to say, let me back off a little bit and say, I'm concerned for their spiritual well-being. If they maintain a position where they don't think they need to be connected to a local church, then I worry for their soul. And the outcome could be hell. Okay? That would be the position that I would take. Because they, they have no means of validating their faith. They don't even know if they have a true profession of faith. And so I'm going to move on to that point here in just a minute about the true profession of faith. So the church should be important to you because you validate your faith through the way you serve in the local church. The way you love matters. If you're loving people in the body, matters because Jesus says, by this all men will know what? That you're my disciples, that you have love for one another. So body life validates faith. The second point is that the church causes you to endure into the return of Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 10, and this is a passage I, I, I bring up quite often when I'm talking about being involved in a local church, and the need for that is that we need to endure until the return of Christ, right? The author of Hebrews is tra- teaching us how to persevere in the faith, right? This is Hebrews chapter 10. Right now we're seeing Hebrews chapter 11, people who persevered in the faith, and they did so well, so that God is not ashamed of them. In Hebrews chapter 10 here at this passage, as Sam taught us, faith, hope, and love, you know, is, is a means of causing us to persevere. And right here, it's this love that's in view. That if we're going to endure or persevere in the faith, we need other people in the body of Christ. And I was telling Kyra last week, you need other people. They need you and you need them. And so the author of Hebrews says this, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some have the habit of doing. Now this concept of not giving up meeting together let me just speak on this a minute, because what's in view here is somebody who's basically just given up meeting with the church. It's not like, you know, hey, I've been traveling for a few weeks, or I've been sick for a while, and so I haven't been to worship. It's, in this context in Hebrews, is you, you, you know a better way, right? I've heard about Christ and the gospel, and, and I'm not so sure that that's the only way, and I, you know, you're kind of dabbling back into the Old Testament rituals and things like that. And you've given up coming together with believers. But the point still stands. Enduring in the faith, is what's necessary is that we come together and spur one another on towards love. Why? Because that's God's greatest commandment, and that validates our faith. And if we give up meeting together, then we're not encouraging one another. We're not spurring one another to love and good deeds. And he does so as a warning. He says, encouraging one another... As you see the day approaching, right? And then he launches in, uh, the author of Hebrews starts talking about, you know, people who, who basically have decided to walk away from the faith. A testimony of two or three witnesses, they're, they're, they have, you know, it's not validating their faith. And then he says, it is a terrible thing to fall in the hands of, of God and his judgment. So it's a warning passage here. And so we're called to validate our faith and endure until the end. And you cannot do that on your own. You need the body of Christ. Again, maybe overstating it, you, you know, an outside fringe case may be able to do it on their own. But God created us to exist in community. We need each other to persevere, to endure in the faith. So the local church should be preeminent in your life because... In God's plan of redemption, 
It causes you to validate and endure. All right, but we also see in God's plan that the local church should be preeminent because in his plan of redemption, it is preeminent in a world hostile to the gospel. The local church should be preeminent in your life because it is preeminent in God's plan of redemption in a world hostile to the gospel. The world is no friend to the gospel. The world is no friend to the church. We see this increasing with regularity in social media and in the news and in politics. But the way the church was designed is the church is an outpost of heaven in an enemy territory we call the world. I want you to think about the church that way. God has... God has established outposts of light all around the world in the darkness that is the world. They are outposts of heaven. And I'll explain that in just a minute. So what do I mean by that? That the church is an outpost of heaven. Let me make two points as I head towards that. First, the church has been granted the task of determining whether or not someone has a true confession of faith. The church has been granted the task of determining whether someone, whether or not someone has a true confession of faith. Right. So this person on this extreme end here is like, I don't need the church, I can do my own thing. Okay, how do they know that their confession is true? Oh, they just said it. Well, has anybody been watching their life? Is their life matching up with their words? There's two passages that I want to go to as we look at this concept. One is in Matthew 16 and one is in Matthew 18. And this will address the confession of faith and the fact that the church is an outpost of heaven on earth. In Matthew chapter 16, you're familiar with this. There's Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is taking them up. They're looking up at this mountain and there's this pantheon of gods. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, way to go, Simon. You get one right, right? Every once in a while, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. He got it right because the Spirit of God was working in him. He continues. He says, and I tell you, Peter, I tell you, Simon Peter, that on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And so a few things are in order here. One, on this rock, I will build my church. What is the rock? Is it Peter? Is it the church? Is it the gospel message? Because of the way the grammar is set up, it has to be Peter, because he's talking to Peter. And so what does he mean by that? Peter was the first one to declare of the group that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That is the confession of faith. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited one. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. You have to believe who Jesus Christ is according to the Scriptures. That is the rock. So so, so Peter is, he is the first in a line of believers. And every believer that comes after Peter has to have the same confession. Who is Jesus Christ? He is the only Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the only one who died on the cross for our sins. And he rose from the dead on the third day. It's the message. And Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. 
I will give you, I will give you Peter, okay? And Peter is, he preached on the day of Pentecost. The church was founded on that message. And by extension, those leaders of the church that came after Peter are in view here. People who are very anti-Roman Catholic have a hard time with that, but that's the only way to look at it. I'm not saying that there's this, you know, the, the keys of the kingdom belong to the Pope in Rome, but I am saying that the leaders who have come in the line after Peter are those who have declared that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and they've been given this authority. Look at the authority they've been given. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And really, the way that should be written, and it's the New American Standard has it, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. So on earth, as the leaders of the church, Peter, one of them, the first one there, when some, someone comes to you and says they're a Christian, well, how do you know they're a Christian? Well, they, they have a, a confession of faith, a profession of faith. They profess that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. The church is the one who listens to that and validates whether that confession or that profession is true. We have the responsibility. We do that in our church, right? If somebody wants to join the church, we say, okay, write down your testimony for us. Tell us who Jesus Christ is. Tell us what the gospel is. And so as the church, we have the authority given to us by Jesus. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. What do you say no to? Whatever you say no to on this earth will have already been said no to in heaven. Whatever you say yes to on earth will have already been said yes to in heaven. And so there's this authority given to the local church, and people don't like to look at the church as having this authority given to it by God, but Jesus is the one who gives the church the authority. And that is what is in view here. Are you declaring Jesus Christ to be the Messiah or not? And if you are, according to the Scriptures, then you have a valid faith. And we'll see you work that out by the way you love the body of Christ. So the church has been granted the task of determining whether or not someone who confesses saving faith truly possesses saving faith, right? So the first is the confession that Jesus is the Messiah. The second authority given to the church is, do you truly possess saving faith? And we see this in Matthew chapter 18. Okay, let me go up here. Matthew 18. In, this, in the context here, Jesus is teaching the disciples how to deal with sin in the church. If, if there's a brother or sister in unrepentant sin or has sin, what do, you, what do you do? How do you deal with it in the church? Let's read this quickly. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Keep that two or three in mind. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. If they refuse to listen to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. All right, so this is how we deal with sin in the church. If somebody's living in sin, we go to them, we talk to them about it, say, hey, we're pleading with you, turn from your sin. If they listen and repent, great. If they don't, you take two or three other people to them, and you warn them again. If they repent, great. If not, you tell the church. If they still refuse to repent, then you treat them like a, a pagan or a tax collector. This is authority given to the church, to the leaders of the church. And, I, and really, I want to say, when I say the church and the leaders of the church, the leaders are a subset of the church. There is agreement among the church and the leaders. All right, we continue. 
Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. There it is. There's the authority given to the church. You have authority given to you by Jesus Christ, church, to bind and to loosen. So the two places where the church has authority in your life. One, are you truly confessing Jesus Christ as the Messiah? Two, are you repentant? Are you dealing with sin the right way? Are you living in sin or are you not living in sin? Are, are, you, are you obeying all that Jesus commanded or not? Well, then he continues. He says again, truly I tell you, that if two of you on earth, earth agree about anything they ask for it, it will be done for them. And my Bible, let me read that again. Again, truly I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them also. Right? So you, this is the second time we've seen that concept of two or three. Right? If we back up a little bit here, he says, established by the testimony of two or three witnesses, where two or three are gathered in my name. People use this passage, verse 19 and 20. Okay, wherever two or three people are gathered, wherever two or three Christians come together, there you have, you got the church. Well, yeah, they're part of the church, the universal church, but is that the church? It's not the church. It's two or three people. So if I go to Kroger and I'm shopping and I bump into two other followers of Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden we have a local church there. People from the church are there, but that's not all of a sudden a church. So that's one way people look at this wrong. You have to take it in context. You cannot take a passage out of context. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. And then verse 19, I tell you, if two or three of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So people use that when they're praying, right? Okay, we have two or three people, and we want agreement on this thing that we're praying about, and if we agree on it, then, then, then it'll be done by our Father in heaven. Then all of a sudden, it's just because there's three people there, and you've prayed about it, God is somehow, he's bound to give you what you asked for. I don't care if you have 50 people who name the name of Christ, and they pray in agreement on something. If it's not according to the will of God, it's not going to happen. It's just not. You have to qualify anything they ask for. And really, when you look at the text, that about anything is judicial concept. So what's in view here? Keep everything in context here. We're talking about how to deal with sin in the local church. As you're dealing with sin, you take two or three witnesses to go there. Okay, And then after you've gone through the process, two or three, you've got the person who's in sin, the person that came to them, and another witness. If their agreement that that person has repented of their sin and they're, they're, they, they want to follow Christ, they're forgiven. There's agreement there. And the church has that authority. So the church has the authority to validate your profession of faith. And the church has the authority to validate if you are just merely giving lip service to the gospel or you're living it out. Are you a professor and not really a possessor of true faith in Jesus Christ? So the church has this authority given to it by God. And so that's why I take a pretty hard stance. If a person is totally disconnected from the local church, I don't need the church. I can do things on my own. I've got my Bible. I've got the Holy Spirit. I can worship God on my own. 
just fine. I don't need the church. I shudder for them. I'm worried for them. Because they're heading down a very dangerous path. How are they going to validate their faith? How are they going to prove their love for God if they're not loving other people in the body of Christ? What if they fall into sin? They don't have other people speaking into their life, identifying that sin, and coming along encouraging them and spurring them on to love and good deeds so that they can repent of that sin and move past that sin and walk in obedience. So the church helps us to validate our faith. Again, as I said earlier, the church has been granted the task of determining whether or not someone who confesses saving faith truly possesses saving faith. The church is important. The church should be preeminent. The church, as John Stott says, the church is central to God's purpose as seen in both history and the gospel. It must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take lightly what God takes so seriously? How, we, how dare we push to the circumference what God has placed in the center? No, we shall seek to become responsible church members active in some local manifestation of the universal church because the church glorifies God. It demonstrates his love. That's where the truth is. Give God's people there to help you validate your faith and endure to the end. And it's a part of God's plan. His plan of redemption. His plan of validating your faith. So why should the church be important to me? God's glory, God's love, God's truth, God's people and God's plan. Let's pray.